Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. My guest today is Shulam Dean. His biography at shulamdean.com reads, Shulam Dean is the author of the award-winning memoir, All Who Go, Do Not Return, an account of living within and then leaving New York's Scaverer Hasidic community. He is a regular contributor to The Forward, and in 2015 was listed in The Forward 50 an annual list of American Jews with outsized roles on political and social issues. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, The New Republic, Salon, Tablet Magazine, and elsewhere. He serves as a board member at Footsteps, a New York City-based organization that offers assistance and support to those who have left the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. This was a powerful and challenging conversation for me. I absolutely loved, admired, was devastated, and inspired by Shulam's book, so I was a little nervous and very thrilled to talk to Shulam. I cannot stress enough how much I think you should read this book about his life living in New Square, New York, in an insular Hasidic community. One of my favorite things about this conversation was it heightened my connection to the book, and this conversation is not a substitute for reading the book itself. We did not retell the narratives found within the book, so there are very few spoilers to be found in the conversation. I hope this chat gets you excited about his book, which won the National Jewish Book Award by the Jewish Book Council. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Shulam Dean. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I'm here today with my guest, Shulam Dean, author of the memoir, All Who Go, Do Not Return. Shulam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So I want to start off today by talking about the first day that I emailed you. And I received an a fantastic auto reply that I loved. And there's a few fascinating quotes that you have in your email auto reply. And the first is, if this is to tell me you disagree with me, I thank you for that too. Although regretfully, I must decline email debates. The Uh second is, if this is to tell me how sad or sorry or heartbroken you are for me, I appreciate that. So these email lines were amazing to me um, because since you have this as an auto reply, you must get a lot of things related to this. So can you tell me a little bit about the normal day in your correspondence as an ex-Hasidic scaverer? And because I found this auto reply immensely fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, I put that in soon after my book came out. I was just getting overwhelmed with emails 
uh, and it was impossible to respond to them all. But, you know, you have a book out there, people read your story and they connect with your message and they feel like they know you. And I felt like I should, there should be some acknowledgement of the email that came in, even if I wasn't able to respond to every person who wrote. Um, and I, I wasn't able, it's just not my, I, I, by temperament, I just cannot just shoot a quick reply to every person who emails me when it comes in at that, at that volume. And so I sort of found some ways to categorize them. And I found the ones that I truly appreciated. And then I found the ones that sort of annoyed me a little bit. Um, and so, you know, I, I am actually, I, I'd like to hear from people who disagree with me. Um, but I just can't go on and on in back and forth email debates. And that, that's something that there were some readers who wanted to do that. Um, so that was for them. And there was, there was one particular reaction that I got a lot from my book and I still get. Uh, and that is, I feel so sorry for you. Mm. And I, I think that reaction is understandable, especially in the way that I chose to end my book. I chose to end my book... Um, at a point where where you feel really like this story has not been resolved well. Um, you feel like this story has been resolved. It, it, it ends in tragedy, um, pretty mm -hmm. much. Um, and I think that many people came away feeling that the condition that I write about at the end of my book, that is the condition I live with now, which is not really the case. Um, I, I started writing the book in 2010, um, that's when I conceived of the narrative arc. That's when I thought about how I was going to tell this story. And, you know, it, right now it's eight years after I began writing. And even when the book came out, it was five years after. And I was not in that place that, that I write, uh, that, that I describe myself at the end of the book. Um, and I chose to, I chose that ending because that felt the truest ending. And even though, you know, I'd gone on to do some things and I'm, I'm, I live a, fairly happy life. You know, we all have good days and bad days, but I, I have a strong social network and lots of friends and things like that. But I, I felt like none of that really uh, would, would make for a proper resolution of the story I tell. Because the story I tell really ends in, in, in devastation. And I felt like it had to end at that point. But then readers thought that that's where I was and I would get Emails like, I feel so sorry for you. Are you still, you know, if you're, if you ever still feel lonely, you know, we'd love to have you for Friday night Shabbat dinner, <laughs> things like that. And <laughs> it kind of, it kind of annoyed me to some degree that, that readers didn't have that awareness that writers are not necessarily the exact same person that they read about. Um, and so I felt, you know what, let me put this to good use. And so I thought, let me tell all these people who feel that sorry about me um, to actually channel that, that feeling to support an organization that I feel really strongly about. I feel strongly about its mission, and that's an organization called Footsteps, uh, which provides assistance to people who've left the ultra-Orthodox world. And so that was, that was my way of trying to urge people away from the focus on feeling so sorry for me and into actually doing something to help people. Nice. So we're going to get into so many of the things that you just talked about. But before we do that, I want to get some, some terminology and some basics out of the way because there were so many new concepts to me in this right. book. 
Right. And so 12 years ago, you left an ultra-Orthodox and insular sect of Hasidic Judaism called the Skaverers. Right. Who are the Skaverers? Well, the Skaverers are a sect within Hasidic Judaism. Uh, Hasidic Judaism is a movement that uh, had, it sort of got its start in the uh, 18th century Poland, uh, or, or what is now the Ukraine, and then spread very quickly among uh, uh, across Eastern Europe into uh, the areas where Jews live, the Pale of Settlement in particular, and, and even further west into Hungary and Czechoslovakia and, and parts of Austria. Um, and so as the movement developed, it broke off into different sects that were... Uh, that were headed by leaders from different towns. And because Jews were so spread out geographically, they couldn't all come to one master who lived in one place in Poland. And so uh, this concept of, of different groups, sort of, you know, different groups following certain, uh, certain Hasidic leaders, that sort of came out of this. And so you have different sects that, that were built around, around that, that sort of diversification. And so the squares are, are just one sect, and, and every sect has its own sort of distinguishing characteristics. And the Skvera sect today, post-Holocaust, um, you know, after they sort of rebuilt in the United States, they are known for their insularity, and they're known for, uh, they're known for, well, at least they themselves think as, think that they are the closest bearers of the Hasidic tradition. Uh, the leader of the Skvera sect is a direct descendant of the Baal Shem Tov, who is uh, the founder of the Hasidic movement. And um, and so the Skveras have this idea of authenticity about themselves. The broader Hasidic world doesn't necessarily share that. What they, what they do think is that these people have really isolated themselves in a way that goes further than, than what most Hasidic sects have done. Although most Hasidic sects now do live uh, uh, in sort of a self-imposed isolation to some degree. Uh, but the Skvaras just took that a step further. So how do they compare to the other groups that you talk about in the book, like the Lubavitchers, the Sotmars, the Breslovs? Is there any like competition or distrust among these groups? Um, well, I would say the Hasidic world generally is characterized by a mainstream and then by a couple of of sort of separate Hasidic movements. Um, so the mainstream are what 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 is sort of just how would I describe this? Uh, sort of run of the mill Hasidim, which is you know they're the Satmers, they're the Skverers, they're the Vishnitzers, they're the Bel Belzers. They all pretty much dress the same. They have similar worldviews, similar ideologies. Um, and they're probably somewhere between, I think they're about 350,000 in the New York City area, maybe more, maybe less. It's hard to know exactly the numbers, but um, that, that's an estimate that some uh, uh, demographers have come up with. Then there are, there are certain Hasidic sects that I, I would almost define them as separate Hasidic movements. Um, and that includes the Chabad, also known as Lubavitchers, as well as the Breslov. Um, I think both of them, particularly the Lubavitchers, the Chabad, are very different from the mainstream Hasidic uh, community in that they're outward focused. They're, they're into outreach. Uh, many people, when they think of Hasidim, actually think of Chabad because those are the ones they come in contact with. Chabad sets up 
uh, Chabad synagogues all over the world. There is a Chabad in, in almost every town in the United States. Uh, there's a Chabad in almost every country throughout the world. Um, so in that way, they're very different. The other groups, the Skveras, the Sapners, the Vishnitsers, the Belzers, uh, retreat into their own little enclaves and want nothing to do with the outside world. That's really interesting. I do have a very good friend of mine in this town that I live in who is Chabad. He's the Chabad rabbi here in my city. Right. And he's always engaged. He's in the newspaper. He's doing like, uh, he's working in the student union. He's doing all kinds of out- outreach work. Right. Yes. They, they're definitely on college campuses. Almost every college campus uh, uh, has a Chabad or at least, you know, every, every sort of major college has a Chabad presence of some kind. So yeah. on the other hand, there's this term in the book that I think a lot of people will be interested in, and that is goyim. Uh, who are goyim, and why does this term matter? Well, goyim, are, it's, it's just the uh, it's the Yiddish word for non-Jew. I mean, it's it's originally Hebrew. It means nations, uh, and it essentially means the nations of the world as opposed to the Jewish people. Um, but Jews have had a uh, how do we put it a somewhat complicated relationship with the Gentile world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, historically, Jews have seen the, the non-Jewish world as threatening. Uh, this is not just true of, of Hasidic Jews. This is true of, of Jews across the board until, you know, fairly recently when, when Jews are now living quite comfortably, I would say, in the United States. And one can argue that at least in the U.S., there, uh, while there might be some anti-Semitism, the U.S. is not an anti-Semitic society. The U.S. is a society in which Jews have, have done exceptionally well, probably better than they've done in history, ever. Um, and, and, you know, coupled with the fact that now there's a Jewish state of Israel, uh, which is also historically unprecedented, the Jewish relationship to non-Jews has sort of changed, but in more traditional circles, the relationship between Jews and non-Jews still has that sort of medieval quality. It sort of still has that suspicion, that that fear of the non-Jewish world. And so this is not, I I would say, an ideological, um, so much an ideological point as much of a, a, a something born of history. Gotcha. Now, in the book, I get the impression that there is a sense of suspicion for outside Goyim uh, in places like New Square, where you lived for many years. Are there are, are many Hasidic children who are raised in these insular environments raised to believe that Goyim hate Jews or hate Hasids? Is that a pretty common thing? Oh, certainly. Certainly. And, and you know, I would qualify the fact that what I said about you know, Jews being fairly comfortable in the United States, I think that is true. I do think that uh, there, is, there is tremendous hostility towards ultra-Orthodox Jews. Um, and I think that, it, you know, some might call that anti-Semitism. It's certainly not the kind of anti-Semitism that is directed broadly towards the entire Jewish world. But growing up as a Hasidic person, the idea that anti-Semitism doesn't exist in America would have been completely, completely astounding to me because we encountered what we thought was anti-Semitism all the time uh, because there was tremendous hostility. And so our attitude towards Goyim was, uh, you know, there would be young teenagers from surrounding areas, surrounding neighborhoods, and they'd come drive through the village and, and just try to cause trouble and be hostile. And so 
that's where that that feeling develops and and so when you develop that kind of distrust and that kind of fear of the outsider you some it, it sort of turns into an ideological point and there is some some basis for having that ideological point within Judaism. Um, and so that gets reinforced by the attitudes that people see. So I want to linger on that for a second. So in your book, All Who Go Do Not Return, you describe a, a terrifying moment. And for me, I was like riveted reading this. And the section of the book is whenever a car of bigoted kids drove through New Square, almost ran you over, and then you rounded up like a mob of folks by yelling "shkuzum," which means Shkuz. vermin, right? Did I say that right? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, a shagat is the masculine term for, for a non-Jew. The feminine term is somewhat more well-known. It is shiksa. Um, and so, so shagat is the, the male equivalent of shiksa. And the plural of shagat is shkuzum um, in Yiddish. Gotcha. And so shkuzum basically, you know, it comes from... The Hebrew term vermin, uh, but it's generally, it, it is a Yiddish word, really, that means either non-Jew or a Jew who has become, who has gone so far off from the tradition uh, that he too has become a Shagetz. So when this car like almost ran you over and you ground, and you rounded up a group of people, so the, the car is trapped in your village the, and right. the car charges and the mob causes the car to crash. So in the moment, it was very powerful uh, on both sides. It seemed powerful on your side because you were like in this like group mentality of mm -hmm. this intruder. So what stands out to you all these years later about that day? And what do you think the major lessons for people might be in a moment such as that? Well, you know, I, I, I actually struggled to find a reason to include that in the book. Um, it, it was a very disturbing incident in hindsight. In the moment, it was disturbing in the moment um, because it felt threatening. It felt like here are people who are here to, to hurt us. Um, later, I think I, I reflected on that. And, and I remember that night in particular, it was a holiday, and I remember thinking about what makes us different from them. Um, I was somewhat disturbed at the gleefulness that I witnessed at the car crash. Uh, because these, these kids were clearly very hurt. They, were, they, they got really badly beat up by, by their car crash. And I, I thought, okay, you know, they, they were clearly kids who were trying to cause trouble. Um, but I didn't quite have the feeling that they deserved that. I had the feeling that, okay, you know, they got themselves into a pickle that they shouldn't have. And maybe they got, maybe that was something that, uh, you know, not quite they had coming, but they could have expected that. Um, but I, I was not happy with the way people felt so indifferent to the fact that there were teenagers here who were actually injured and had to be hospitalized. And I don't know to what degree they were injured. I don't know. I never found out whether anyone was in serious condition or anything like that. Uh, I, I, my, my general sort of assumption is that they were not seriously injured because we probably would have heard about it. Um, but, but that may or may not be correct. But I was really troubled by the notion that 
that we considered them to be so almost non-human. Um, and that, that really bothered me. Do you find any irony in that? Irony in what way? In the fact that, you know, for so many thousands of years, um, the world has been so threatening to the Jewish community. And so was your, is your response like a, like a, like a defensiveness um, against the thousands of years of history that have kind of like built up in the community? Well, uh, my response was simply, you know, it wasn't from a particular superior moral or ethic, ethical position. It was more, um, it, 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 you know, it had something to do with how I was raised. And I was raised with parents who did not come from within the Hasidic tradition. They were, they came from the more secular Jewish world and had joined the Hasidic world. And I had always been raised um, by my parents to actually see non-Jews in ways that were different from from the way the community generally saw them. The community was, the Hasidic community is generally very uh, sort of hostile or, or it returns the, it returns the favor mm-hmm. of, you know, the non-Jewish world being sort of showing it such hostility. Um, but I was not raised by my parents to believe that way. And that had a lasting and powerful impact. And so when this happened, I think that my reaction to these kids getting so hurt uh, was was very different from the reaction of most people in the community. So, what was your day to day life like? Like, so obviously, this car crash is like a an an, an out of the ordinary day. So, what was like an ordinary day like for you living in New Square? Well, you know, ordinary day in New Square is pretty much like ordinary day everywhere. You know, you worry about rent and making your car payments and uh, paying the electric bill and uh, you know raising your kids and and. Uh, you know, finding a job, which was, uh, you know, always, it's always a, 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 a very substantial concern, especially since Hasidic men are not, uh, don't receive much secular education. And so they have very limited uh, marketable skills. And so um, that, that became a big issue, especially when you have to raise a, a large family. You're taught to, you know, to, to, that raising large families is important. It's a, it's, probably one of the uh, most supreme values within the Hasidic community, um, the centrality of family. And so on the one hand, they emphasize that, but on the other, uh, there's a lack of training for, for the workforce. And so that was, that was a sort of a perennial anxiety until ultimately, you know, I went to the library and, and fast forward in the story, I, I taught myself computer programming and actually had a career as a computer programmer for about a decade. Uh, but that would come later. So a lot of, it seems really hard to make a living in the town. And I noticed that there was a, quite a prevalence of people leaving t- on buses to go into New York City to work every day. Is that pretty common? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I mean, how do, do, do people work like in the village? Like what are the common professions like in the town? Well, professions would be, uh, I wouldn't quite call them professions. You know, people just find work as entrepreneurs um people people find work in low-skilled jobs people are bus drivers people are uh you know people work in in stores in supermarkets and and you know whatever other stores there might be uh and and it's sort of a it's to a large degree it's a very self-contained economy Um, most of most of what's earned stays within the community 
there's some that comes from the outside. And so there are the buses that go to New York City. But even the ones that go to New York City, largely uh, Hasidic Jews are employed by other, either other Hasidic Jews or, or other, you know, ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox Jews. Um, for Jews to work in a, for Hasidic Jews to work in a uh, completely secular company is not unheard of, but it's, it's fairly unusual. So I went on YouTube and found some clips of folks walking through New Square and they would like walk past um, like a yeshiva and people would scream out the window, get out of here. And that reverberated strongly with me because I grew up in a fairly segregated place in St. Louis in the Midwest. And um, New Square kind of gave off that segregated vibe. And I was just curious if now that you're not a part of the community, if you ever happen to like drive through there, like what it feels like now that you're an outsider going to a place that seems so inward looking. Well, you know, I know the place intimately. And so when I drive through there, which which nowadays is not very often, um, but when I do, if, if I do have occasion to drive through there, I never feel uh, I, I never feel threatened. There's there's never that kind of feeling that uh, I better be careful because I'm an outsider. Um, I think because I I know the parameters of what can get you in trouble, and you have to do something that is that is. Uh, fairly overtly antagonistic to actually have something something happen to you. Um, and, you know, New Square is filled with people from from the outside that come in day to day to do work there. I mean, there's certainly uh, there are construction workers who come in to, you know, build the houses. There are, uh, you know, every every public building or every public, you know, all the institutions employ uh, janitors and, and mostly these are people from the outside. Mostly, uh, many of them are uh, immigrants, whether from you know Central America and, and other places like that. The people who do the kind of low-skilled work that that or the kind of low-wage work that you see all over wherever you go, those are the people who do the the low-wage work in New Square as well. And so, you know, no one no one gives them any trouble. It's not. Uh, it, it's it's not really the case that if you walk in and you're not from there, you will um, you will encounter trouble. It's almost always if there is something, there is something that instigated it. Um, yeah, I don't know the the particular YouTube video you're referring to. I would actually be curious to see it, um, but there's probably a backstory there. So I want to talk a little bit about relationships now. Um, while I was reading the book, I was very moved by the stunningly awkward descriptions of like sex and relationships and how you were counseled into your marriage. And I don't think I've ever read anything more painfully awkward than the experience that you had at 18 as a newly married man. And while you were stumbling through like learning about sex, you were being counseled by your elders that a wife isn't a friend so what does reflecting about moments like this mean to you now about like relationships and growing up in the world? Um, well, I should say first that, you know, uh, that is not necessarily, uh, the way I was counseled was not necessarily the norm, um, which is not to say that it was unusual, it was not unusual at all. Uh, but there are plenty of people who are counseled differently, and, and much of it has to do with your individual mentor. 
in in my case, um, I think I think I knew from a very very early period that this marriage was not good for me, and so I think that he had no choice, or he felt kind of sort of that he had nothing to say except, you know, your your concerns are not valid concerns because here's a a, a theological or ideological principle. And so don't worry about that because that's not the point. Um, it's not quite true that that husbands and wives are not meant to be friends. Um, I think there are many very healthy uh, relationships, and, and I think relationship dynamics within the Hasidic world, I mean, they certainly vary from couple to couple. Um, and, and certainly the, the, the quality of, of having an arranged marriage will affect how people will relate to each other. Uh, but so having said that, I, you know, thinking about how that affected me later on, I, I, you know, I, what's funny is I, I had this conversation once, um, this, I, I was in, being interviewed by, uh, by someone at, at an event and she said to me, you know, what do I think about the system of, uh, arranged marriages in the Hasidic community, and I said, you know, I think it's, it's problematic, but I think, you know, the the system that the outside world has, I think, is uh, is filled with problems too. It's filled with you know pitfalls, and and uh, it, it's not completely smooth sailing. And she said to me, "What do you mean, the system? We we don't have a system." <laughs> and that really struck me as. Um, it was it was really fascinating to me that that she hadn't realized that the secular world or, or whatever however you want to term the world outside of of the very religious community um, has a system too you know people don't just go over to someone and say you know you I want to marry you. and then you know next day they're married there's there are courtship rituals and mating rituals and there there's there is a process you know you ask someone out you ask them out on a for a drink you ask them out for dinner you you know you take it step by step and things like that um so of course there's a system it's just not uh it's just not scripted in the same way um and so i think that coming from that world into this world where i had to deal with um things like dating um, getting into relationships, being in relationships uh, with people. I, they're definitely something that I, uh, it makes me think about the world that I came from and how relationships were formed in that world and how they're formed in, in the world outside of it. I think that, I think relationships in, in the Hasidic community are formed with, with the kind of consciousness and intentionality that, we in the broader world, the secular world, uh, have, have generally dismissed as unhelpful to us, as going counter to our philosophies of individualism. Um, and I, I think to a certain extent we'd lose something, which is not, which is not to argue that you know, the, the entire world should adopt Hasidic uh, the methods for, for marriage and, and things like that. But I do think that there's something somewhat, unhel somewhat unhealthy in the way we go about forming relationships, the way, the way I go about forming relationships now as a secular person. You know, I'm, 
uh, I've been out for 10 years and I've had, you know, some short-term relationships and some longer relationships. And um, I think that there is a, there's a, a quality of wanting it all and wanting the perfect person and, and looking for that perfect person that, frankly, we all know does not exist. Um, there is no perfect person. Perfection does not exist in the human world. Um, and I think that because we're so focused on, on ourselves and pleasing ourselves and, and so focused on our individual happiness, I think we lose something in, in the illusion that we could really have everything we want. I do think it's really interesting how we can describe the outside world, like the system that I grew up in, as, as being a system in and of itself. Because if you don't ever think of it like a system and you're only ever looking at other communities, then you think that your way is like the default. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So you don't that's, think of it as a system. Right. Um, although I do. So, that's, so I guess that's, that's what I have coming out of that world is I, I see them both as systems. Um, because I've had to learn, I've had to learn that okay, things work differently here. And now, you know, how do I approach this? I've had to learn the rules. And, and in my thirties, how do you ask a woman out on a date? You know, what is what is the process? How do you do it? How do you uh, just what are the rules? What are the uh, what 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 do people expect of you? What are the faux pas to avoid? Um, these are things that really require learning. And when you grow up in an environment where it's what everyone is doing, you kind of learn it with everyone else. You know, I, I, I suppose, I mean, I haven't been through it, but I, I, from observation, this is what it, it would seem to me that kids go through school, they go through high school and they start, they get involved with each other or they don't, but they're looking for it and they see how their peers are doing it. Um, and so you sort of naturally are, uh, you get acclimated to to how this works and what are what are the norms within the broader society but i didn't have that and so i had to actually study it so uh, one of, yeah so one of my yeah. one of my favorite things in the book was watching your journey out so you just mentioned uh learning new rules and learning new ideas and you have some really really beautiful moments with some people in the book uh a list of characters and one of my favorite is when you were being helped by the librarian, the public library, and you were a black hat Hasid with Payas, and you were sitting in the kids section. Um, what did, what kind of refuge did you find within literature in the months and years after your departure from New Square? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I don't think literature, I don't think literature stood out for me as a source of comfort in, in a particularly primary way. Um, I think where I found, what I found most meaningful in my life after leaving New Square was in, in human relationships, in, in romantic relationships, in, in friendships, in the broader community that I am now part of, um, which is sort of the sort of a community of, of uh, former ultra-Orthodox Jews, um, and I sort of belong to a sort of smaller writing community that that is nurturing to me and that I is important and have created uh, uh, I formed very meaningful friendships from there. Literature, you know, literature had it has its place for me in the same way that um, that all art 
has its place for me. I mean, I'm, I am more a uh, more an ideas person than a visual person, if that makes any sense. And so I am more drawn to to I'm more drawn to reading than saying going to an art museum. Um, I, and I'm more drawn to storytelling. Uh, well, well, that that may may not be true, but I, I'm more drawn to to ideas than to sort of observing abstract things and. and um, and so in that sense, literature, film, uh, general storytelling, journalism, uh, philosophical works, books on history, books on science, those have all been fascinating and, and they've contributed to my intellectual development. Um, and to some degree, I hesitate to use this word, um, but I would say to some degree my spiritual development, although what I mean by spiritual exactly is something that uh, I sometimes struggle to figure out. Um, I'm, I'm sometimes cautious of the word spiritual because I, I, I don't actually, I, my worldview now is very it, sort of mostly materialistic in the sense that I, I don't actually believe in supernatural forces i don't i don't buy into any ideas of of any deities or anything like that um and so but but i mean spiritual and spirituality i mean it in the broadest sense of of feeling connected to others and feeling sort of uh feeling uplifted by by stories and by music and and things like that I loved I loved watching you connect with some of the characters in the book, um, notably Madi, who opened you up to the radio, Manasha, who you discussed the quote strange thoughts, or right. with uh, Heskey, your movie buddy. Um, yeah. Do you keep in touch with any of these folks? And like, if so, what do you talk about? But if not, like, how do you feel towards their roles in you leaving the community? Um. Well, I mean, they were, you know, they were just a, a few of the many friends that I had within the Hasidic world. And, and I lost them the way I lost all the others for the most part. I, I do not keep in touch with them. I've not been in touch with them for many, many years, except for uh, the character I call Manasha. Um, I've, I've run into him on occasion, uh, you know, at like a certain, you know, a family wedding that he, you know, I might be... Re- friends with someone he's related to and I'd go to the wedding and things like that. He happens to also have a brother who figures has an important role in the story. His brother was the younger boy Libby whom I encouraged to go to college instead of, you know, he just wanted to leave and run away. And uh, his idea was to go to the army. And I kind of told him, you know, maybe that's a good idea, but um, why don't you look into uh, going to college and that had never occurred to him and and so he looked into that and he was very academically gifted still is um, and in the end he he ended up leaving and so he and I are are still connected we're good friends he ended up going to uh, Cornell and got a degree in biochemistry and he works in a lab now and all that uh, and so he is the brother of the character Manasha and so occasionally I'll I'll run into the character Manasha because I'm friends with his younger brother who left um, and so things like that. But other than that, I, I do not have connections with the people, um, with people from that world. They're, they've been almost totally uh, severed. And you were, and they're severed from you because you were labeled an apichorus. So what does it mean to be labeled an apichorus in the insular Hasidic world? 
Um, that's an interesting question. Apicaris is something that, you know, in, in that world, they will, in general, in the Orthodox Jewish world, Apicaris, uh, which literally means heretic, is generally a term that people use to. I, there's a lot of weight given to that term. And there is this common notion within the Orthodox world that you can't be an apicorus unless you are exceptionally learned and exceptionally erudite uh, in religious matters, in religious and philosophical matters. And so generally people will say, you're not, you're not learned enough to be an apicorus. They'll say, you haven't studied enough Talmud to be able to reject it. Uh, you haven't studied enough of, of the biblical commentaries to be able to say whether you believe in the Bible's divine origin or not. And so claiming the word, the term apicorus can sometimes seem, within that world, can seem, it, it, it's kind of grandiose. Mm -hmm. But I claimed it for myself because it was actually given to me. Because I was told by the rabbinical court when they expelled me, that I am an Apicarus, and they can't have an Apicarus within this community. And so that kind of gave me, I would say, the permission to say, okay, well, you've called me that, and I'll own that term, because, there's, because to me it's a term of honor. But it also comes with incredibly great costs. Um, the, you know, there are people who leave the Hasidic community, but they're not entirely cut off, because there's a sense that, there's a sense that some people just, you know, it doesn't work for them. Okay. And so, uh, because you were labeled an apicorus, that almost kind of like means that you are recognized as a genuine Talmudic scholar, so to speak? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know if I would go that far. I don't know if that is what they were trying to say. I think that, that th what they were saying was, I am recognized as a genuine threat. Gotcha. Um, as opposed to someone who just doesn't like the community and decides to leave, there's always this hope that they'll, you know, one day they'll come back if you'll be really nice to them. Uh, whereas I don't get that kind of treatment. Gotcha. So what would you say to folks from, like, any community who are being shunned? Like, what do you wish someone who had been shunned from a community told you in your first months out in the world? You know, I don't know that there is that much that can be said for, uh, uh, to prepare someone for the trauma of, of losing community in that way. I guess just to, just, just to be warned that that can be absolutely devastating. Um, I was not prepared for the psychic trauma that I experienced after, after being expelled and leaving this community. I thought that this would not be a big deal because I no longer believe in, in the precepts that this community uh, requires you to believe in. And so I thought, okay, so then I don't belong here. And I had underestimated, I'd underestimated the degree to which the community was not only a place where you had to believe a certain way, but also a place of of human relationships and human connection. And, and I lost all of those. And that was a truly, truly uh, traumatic process. So I'm curious. So like, let's dive out of the book now. What are some of your proudest accomplishments that you have had in the last 12 years? Like what gets you out of bed these days? Um, 
Well, I, I identify primarily as a writer now. Um, and I, I do a lot of writing. Uh, I think the, you know, I, I left that community with the intention of becoming a writer. Uh, I didn't quite know what it would entail. I didn't quite know if that's even a realistic possibility. But there was something about writing that had always, uh, that has always, had always drawn me. I think there's something in my personality that that requires writing it, it, for me to really formulate my thoughts properly. Um, and so I had originally I'd wanted to be a novelist, uh, and I had a novel in progress uh, before I wrote this book. St- you know, still in progress, my, my, and, and I still get back to it um, from time to time. But, uh, you know, one of the things that, an opportunity that came my way was to write a memoir. And originally I didn't, I wasn't thrilled with the idea. I saw memoir as a genre. I saw it as kind of, you know, the bastard child of literature. Um, I wanted to write something something with more gravitas, something that would that would actually be a literary accomplishment. Um, and it took some time for me to uh, become comfortable with the idea of memoir, aside from the fact that it's you have to be so self-revealing and, and uh, put yourself out there for to the public in ways that are not always so comfortable. Uh, I had to come to terms with the fact that memoir as a genre is uh, is an art form and and an art form that is that that requires just as much discipline and skill. Uh, as as a novel, it's just a, a different form. Um, and so, when I had the opportunity to write a memoir, it took some time for me to get comfortable with the idea. But in the end, I, I realized, okay, this is actually this is my way into the world of writing and publishing. And so, for me, this was a literary project primarily. Um, it was not. It was certainly not. I, I had no need to quote tell my story. Uh, I wanted to write a book, and I had an agent who, who thought that I could, uh, if I could write a memoir, it would be uh, something that publishers would be interested in. And I, the work that I did on this book was incredibly hard work. It's probably the hardest work that I'd ever done uh, in my life. And I, I think I would say that that truly is the greatest accomplishment because it, it came with incredible difficulty. And I know that you insisted on recording the audio for the book yourself, um, which I highly recommend to anybody out there. But uh, what did you enjoy about doing the audio for it as well? Uh, well, first of all, I was—I I didn't realize quite the degree to which it is a performance mm-hmm. as opposed to just reading. Um, and so when I sat down in that recording studio the first time and realized that I had to do more than just read the pages. I had to put something into it. Um, that was that was uh, first a little daunting, and because I hadn't practiced, I didn't sit down at home and sort of you know rehearse how I was going to deliver it or anything like that. And um, and it felt a felt somewhat unsettling when I realized just how you know I, I thought I was somewhat unprepared. Um, but then I got into it, and it was. Somewhat draining, you know. It's, it's. I think I did the entire thing in about five sessions, and they were each. Uh, they were five hours each, and I probably had like a about a thirty-minute break um, for most of them, somewhere in the middle. But they were they were fairly long stretches of recording. Um, so that was. Uh, it was an enjoyable experience, certainly. 
um, and interesting, uh, not particularly noteworthy. Uh, but, so, but kind of fun. so what do you do with uh, the organization Footsteps? So I, I serve on their board. I've been connected to them for a very long time now. Uh, I became a member of the organization in 2006, which was short, or 2007, just shortly before I left, when I already had pretty much figured out that I was going to leave. Um, I checked them out. I went to visit their space and uh, initially didn't really feel like I, I could get much out of the organization. They, uh, it felt a little bit like they... they pr- they provide services to people who leave, uh, like helping them get into college and helping them find jobs and helping them navigate, you know, how to find housing and, and just how to be in the secular world. And I felt like I didn't quite need that level of handholding because I had been out. I'd had a job as a computer programmer for 10 years in Midtown Manhattan, uh, which sort of felt like, you know, I felt, I felt kind of acclimated enough um, that I didn't need that kind of support. In the end, I realized that I actually did. Um, first of all, I was not acclimated enough. There was, uh, uh, there was a, a wealth of, of knowledge simply about human conduct and about just how people went about their lives um, that I had to learn. And so Footsteps actually formed a community for me that was absolutely vital in those early years. And so eventually I, I no longer needed the kind of support that I got from them, but I uh, I, the, the community that I had gained from being part of it was, was and remains now incredibly important. Um, and I'm very passionate about their mission. I think it's, uh, they're, they're pretty much the only organization in North America that exists to do this work. Uh, and so I, I now serve on the board as a board member and I'm, I'm involved in the decision making and we've, we've grown tremendously. When I, when I joined the board six years ago, we were a small organization with a, uh, two and a half uh, staff. We had, we had two full, uh, full-time staff members and one part-time. Uh, it was the executive director and a social worker and then a, a sort of a part-time, uh, uh, part-time social worker as well. Um, and now we're a staff of 15 and a you know, budget is literally 10 times as much as it was then. Um, and and I, I think the work we do is, uh, is really vital and life-saving, literally. What do you still love about Judaism? Hmm. Uh, it's hard to say. Um, you know, first of all, I, I differentiate Jewishness from Judaism. Uh, Judaism, I think, is a is a you know, Judaism is is the the belief, the faith system, the faith tradition of Jews. Um, but there are many Jews who don't particularly adopt the faith of their uh, of Judaism, and so I generally consider myself to be culturally Jewish, but not particularly connected to uh, the faith tradition. Although I, 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 you know, I have to say that culturally Jewish does also mean being connected to Judaism, and so that also means celebrating the holidays, even if it doesn't, if it's not in a particularly religious way. And so, you know, I'll never miss a good Hanukkah party um, or a Purim party or, uh, you know, for most of the Jewish holidays, I celebrate it some way, um, even if only because so many people I know are, are doing holiday dinners and, or, or other sort of festivities. And so I take part because it's there, it's available. 
would I necessarily practice anything if I was living in, in Missouri? Um, I, you know, maybe since it's a Chabad house, I, I might <laughs> uh, sort of drift over there um, just for nostalgic reasons. Uh, but I probably wouldn't do much. But my Jewish identity remains incredibly strong and um, incredibly important, even if in some ways um, complicated. So as a father, I was really drawn to the story of uh, you and your children. And um, I know this is a really complicated uh, part of the book for you. Um, Have you had any breakthroughs on rebuilding any relationships with any of your five children? Well, um, what, what I'd say to that is, is, you know, I appreciate the question and I get asked that a, a fair amount. It's now about three years since my book was published, but it's eight years since I started writing the book and, and my, my children are in a very different place. And so I've chosen actually um, the, the, I've chosen to make this the one question that I actually don't uh, respond to much, or at least not with much elaboration, um, because my children now are, they're grown. Um, three of them are adults, uh, are of adult age, and the other two are close to adults, and uh, my two oldest ones are uh, already married and you know building families of their own, and so I've chosen to, to not get much into that, that area. Um, and to give them a measure of privacy. Um, but, but I do appreciate uh, the question, and I do appreciate when, when people uh, express that interest in knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, this is the one thing that, the one area that I decline to go into, if, if that makes any sense. Absolutely, sir. So, Shulam Dean, um, your book, All Who Go Do Not Return, is wonderful, marvelous, heartbreaking, inspiring all at once. Uh, and I'm curious if you can just share where people can find more about you if they'd like to know more about your work. Oh, sure. Uh, well, I have a website, uh, shulamdean.com, where you can find me. Um, I'm on social media, just like everyone is, uh, and, and hate it, just as everyone does. And oh, still yes. And to it, just as everyone is. <laughs> uh, so I have a Twitter account, shdean, um, which you can find, which I don't use all that much. My website has information about, you know, my book and uh, my other writings and events that I uh, that I do. I I do fairly regular speaking engagements, and so I try to post them up on my events page and things like that. So shulamdean.com is where you can find me. This has been a real pleasure, th- sir. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Thank you, Greg. Really appreciate it. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.